Pixel Therapy is a member of the But Why Though Podcast Network. Go to butwhythopodcast.com for an inclusive geek community offering pop culture news, reviews, and podcasts. Hi, I'm Chris Guthrie, and I'm the host of the Role for Equality podcast. We're an LGBTQ plus and woman-led show that uses history for character inspiration by telling stories about badass historical people and how to make them into a PC or NPC for your campaigns with class, race, and background suggestions. We also do interviews and discussions about our experiences as women at the game table, social issues, and advice to help give a platform to women and non-binary players of every variety. There are plenty of laughs, drinks, hijinks, and more here at Rule for Equality, and we would love for you, however you identify, to come join in the fun and camaraderie. The Role for Equality Podcast. Give us a listen on major podcast platforms and happy adventuring. That was also our, our New Year's yes. Eve party. Okay, we're, in good, we're in good company then. Like, everyone's yeah. like a little basic, but in a way that's like, you know, it's fine. Like, I'm, I'm drinking we a, need a basic coffee right now. Yeah, like, we need basic right no now. There's no standards here. Like, it's yeah. all comfort. <laughs> Welcome to Pixel Therapy, the video game podcast where we look at the games we play through the lens of the player, where what you play is just as important as how you play it, and where emotional intelligence is a critical stat. Every other week, we bring on a guest who may or may not consider themselves a gamer to discuss the games that have made them and change them, and all the feelings they have about our favorite pastime. I'm your co-host, Jamie, pronouns she, her. And I am your co-host, Spencer, pronouns they, them. And okay, I'm sorry, pause. I just want to mention... Um, I thought it might be a good time to remind people why we share our pronouns. Um, just because, uh, you know, I think um, there was intention around it. And it's also like, um, it's important to us to share our pronouns just because uh, I think when you don't, there, uh, because of how homogenous gaming media can be, there can almost be a, an assumption of like, oh, they must be. I don't know, two women or, or I don't, whatever. Like we have all sorts of perceptions about the people we're hearing and also, um, you know, what's, what we see around us influences, like how we interpret media, especially when there's no visual, like it's just a podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, but that being said, like me disclosing my pronouns at the beginning of the episode um, is simply that. It, it's simply a way for me to let you know how I preferred you to think of me or address me. Um, but if I didn't share my pronouns, um, that's valid too. And uh, there should be no expectation put on anyone to, like, you don't owe your identity to anybody else. Um I just say that because I've just seen um, some conversations happening in like queer and trans Twitter lately about how um, if you don't put your pronouns in your bio or you don't say your pronouns when you introduce yourself, uh, does that mean that you're hiding your gender or mm. that you're not sure what your gender is? Um, and I think that this idea of people who don't immediately disclose to you how you need to understand them um, being hiding themselves or being deceitful um at its core it's, it's kind of a homophobic uh sentiment i think that it mm. um again tries to put queerness into the same boxes that we um put binary genders into or are trying to explain queerness and transness in um terms that belong to uh white supremacy or heterosis normativity. Um and so I just uh kind of want to separate those concepts a bit. If folks have questions, like you can feel free to email us um or let me know, you know, 
you tag us on Twitter, tag us on Instagram. Um, but I just want to say that us introducing our pronouns um, is just a way for us to make that visible. Um, but you don't ever owe anyone an explanation and your gender mm-hmm. is, is totally up to you and it can change at any time. Um, and mm-hmm. so my pronouns are they, them. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess I'll just add as like someone who's uh, cisgender, like for me, I, you know, I have, I feel very comfortable sharing my pronouns. And so I feel like I kind of have a responsibility to uh, set that precedent and help normalize it as, mm-hmm. as a thing that, that people do regardless of whether they're cisgender or not so that folks who aren't cisgender can hopefully feel more comfortable mm-hmm. sharing their authentic pronouns in a, in a given space. So yeah. I think it's important to normalize it too. And everything you said about like, not everyone has to feel comfortable doing it is totally valid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I think now that we've come up on a year now that we've been fully zoom uh, it's felt at the beginning like sharing all of our pronouns, regardless of whether you were trans or cis, felt really progressive. And um, it felt like we were bringing visibility and diversity into like my very corporate office space. Um, Mm -hmm. But now that we've gone this fully remote year and I've had to start every conversation by disclosing that I'm probably the only person in the room who's Mm. trans, um, by saying they, them, um, it started to feel a little objectifying, if I'm being honest. Um, uh. Like I find myself almost feeling like I'm reduced to the fact that um, I am a they, them. I'm a publicly visible they, them. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it's just, it's a nuanced conversation. It's something that I think I'll be thinking about and musing about and probably bringing up again. Um, but just just wanted to take a little space to chat about that with folks because um there's no one way to be trans. And even if other trans people are saying things like, if you don't share your pronouns, you must not be trans or you must be hiding your gender. Um, even if that's coming from another trans person, that doesn't mean that it should influence your understanding of your own transness or how you want to disclose that to others. It's, it's your choice. 100%. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Jamie, what is this? Where are we? <laughs> uh, no, thank, thank you for that uh, little PSA in the middle of our intro. Uh, this is Pixel Therapy, though, in case you just clicked download on this thing and had no clue what it was. Hello. Hi. Pixel Therapy. Uh, we will We're a video inter- game podcast. <laughs> We're a video game podcast, and we will absolutely interrupt that to have a detailed conversation about pronouns. So mm-hmm. welcome to our space. Uh, we wanted to kick off today with a big old thank you uh, because we hit a huge milestone mm. this week. Pixel Therapy has officially been downloaded 10,000 plus times. <laughs> what? I can't even wrap my head around that. We've only been here since, what, September Sept- 2020? It's been six months. Six months, 15 wow. episodes. Or six, this is our 16th episode. Mm-hmm. 42 countries, according mm-hmm. to our host. Uh, I just thank you. Yeah. Thank you so what? much. It's, <laughs> we talk, we've talked in the past, you know, this, this podcast is a lot of work, uh, mm-hmm. stuff like that, but it's also a lot of fun. And I, I just, I'm aware of like how much of a privilege it is that we get to do this mm-hmm. and that 
people are listening that 10,000 times someone clicked download on one of our episodes. Uh, It's a huge privilege. I often don't feel like I deserve it, but I am humbled and grateful for everyone who's who's hit that download button in the past six months thank you so much y'all rock um yeah thanks for choosing to be here the week after Mm -hmm. week um let's keep going i'm excited to see like 20k feels insane but hey like maybe that'll happen someday um yeah yeah where are we gonna be six months from now right (laughs) yeah what um i mean yeah jamie and i have some exciting plans this year we want to start twitch streaming um first we need to (laughs) save money to buy a computer (laughs) (laughs) yeah the first step is like i need an office uh right now i do this from a card table i set up in my living room and uh yeah so step one at the end of the month uh my partner and i are moving and i'm gonna have an actual office space which i'm so excited but yeah we're we're on our way towards and also same i do i podcast from my (laughs) living room studio uh, where my partner is currently doing yoga behind me so you know it's just multifunctional real we work energy going on in here (laughs) (laughs) absolutely uh but yeah i we just we wanted to mark the milestone it's Mm -hmm. important to celebrate uh it's important to celebrate accomplishments in your life uh regardless it's it's i just for me personally it's so easy to overlook positive stuff i get so focused on like what's not going right that uh even when something exciting happens i'm just like yeah oh well that's expected that's supposed to happen Mm, that that was mm, part of the plan mm, so we don't mm -hmm. need to like give it any time but it's important to take the time and say hey this is really cool and you know we didn't do it without all of you so that's right And oh my gosh, to what you just said, okay, this is the last thing. I I think to your point, like it's really easy to look around in the gaming space, which is full of so many innovative, creative, talented, hilarious, special people Mm -hmm. and look and be like, oh my God, their community, their audience. Yeah. uh, They've been doing this for so long. Mm -hmm. All of these things that come up and make you think, oh my God, why am I coming back and doing this every day? Um, but it's not as often that I stop and actually take stock of, but what are the things that we have achieved that mm-hmm. if you had asked me six months ago, I never would have even pictured yeah. that yeah. this would have happened. And if I had no, if you and I, Jamie, had never like started this, we just would never would have seen this. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's just important to um, be thankful for uh, <laughs> what, what's going on in our present. So yeah, just um, yeah. y'all rock and we love you and we just want to keep keep doing this. Yeah. Uh, next up in new and noteworthies, don't forget we've got a bonus. <laughs> <Yeah>, speaking of. <laughs> speaking of, if you want to continue to help us out, don't forget we've got bonus episodes for you over on Patreon for just $2 a month. Last month in February, Spencer and I chatted about our all-time favorite video game crushes. And for the month of March, we're doing a 2021 game preview that's got a unique surprise format. Mm-hmm. You'll have to have to check it out. Um, that's going to be coming to Patreon in the next couple of weeks, and you're not going to want to miss it. So please go to patreon.com slash pixeltherapypod and uh, subscribe at that $2 tier or above to check those bonus episodes out. They're a lot of fun, if I do say so myself. I might a little be little unhinged too. <laughs> little you unhinged. Get us unplugged. Untucked. Yeah. Untucked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, um, but all yeah, right. Even if you don't support, we we love you for listening. Um, no yes, worries. Of course. Thank you. All right, that's enough of that. It is time to get cozy, pull up an armchair, and feel free to lie down on your couch. 
we're going to talk about our feelings. Spencer, what are you playing? Yeah. Um, thank you for asking. Well, <laughs> I just want to mention, I'm not going to say anything about it because I can't. Um, but as y'all know, we are part of the But Why Though uh, podcast network. And butwhythough.com uh, is also a... Um, Oh my gosh, what are words? It's a media, like articles, (laughs) news. It's a website (laughs) with articles and interesting content about gaming, anime, manga, etc. I can't talk this morning. However, um, something really exciting is that I am currently, one of the games I'm currently playing is one that hasn't come out yet. It's called Olive Town Story of Seasons um, coming to the Nintendo Switch. So I'm excited to talk about that with you a little bit later. Um, but I just want to mention that if people like farming games and you miss Harvest Moon, you miss, you want some new Stardew Valley, like might want to mark your calendar for the end of March because all of town, story of seasons coming to the Switch. Anyway, I just wanted to. <laughs> Just, it's crazy to me that that someone <laughs> sent me a video game that hasn't come out yet, yeah. and that I get to play it and then yeah. write about it. Like that's just like my twelve year old self is screaming right now. Yeah. Um. So that's happening. But <laughs> another game that I decided, just a little palate cleanser. Um. I decided to pick up Firewatch, uh, mm. which is a game that came out a few years ago. Uh. Twenty seven. Twenty sixteen. Um, thereby, uh, the developer's called Campo Santo. Um, I think famously people describe it as a walking simulator, mm-hmm. which it is like you are most of the actions you take in the game are just are walking around, um, the Shoshone National Park, mm-hmm. um, uh, in Colorado, I believe, or maybe California. Um, I'm sorry, I'm bad at geography. Wyoming. Oh, Wyoming? Shoshone National Forest is in Wyoming. Oops. Okay. Sorry, <laughs> Wyoming. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I'm like, national parks, all that exists. Uh, I'm, it's my coastal elite coming out. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, no. There it is. Um, There's that coastal elite. I know. I'm such an ass. Anyway, okay. So Firewatch, um, wow. What can I say about this game? I haven't finished it yet. I'm about halfway through. It's it's not a long game. I think you can finish it in under 10 hours. Um, so I'm probably like four hours in. Um, but the game, uh, it's a, I would say the style is mm, cartoonish, um, semi-realistic, but with sort of a softened, uh, softened edges, really uh, natural, earthy tones. Um, and essentially, you play as Henry, uh, a man who's gone through a really traumatic life change where his partner, who he'd been with for um, several years, is... Uh, um, affected by early onset dementia. Um, so the person that he's loved for years is uh, has become unrecognizable and he also isn't able to take care of her anymore, um, which I think is something that can be really um, hard to accept, especially in a romantic relationship when, um, you know, your, your partners and, and the idea that there's some ways that you can't be there as a caregiver. I think it's important to remember that caregiving can be really hard. And um, I think this game, one of the things that resonates with so many people is that it's so, um, what's the word? Auth- 
earnest, authentic. Like it really is unflinching in showing the full spectrum of um, emotions that someone might go through when going mm-hmm. through a traumatic event. I think a lot mm-hmm. of video games really lean into this heroic narrative of, oh, all these terrible things happened to the main character, um, but they overcame and they have just an unending optimism Mm -hmm. uh, and nothing really gets them down. It's only temporary. Um, But I think Firewatch, like right from the beginning, you know, just, just the circumstances around why Henry comes to work at the park, he's, he's really kind of escaping Mm -hmm. um, from his home life, coming to work at this uh, national forest over the summer um, where he is a volunteer who basically camps out of a watchtower um, that's put in the park to look out for, uh, smoke from from wildfires as well as keep an eye on controlled burns um that fire people do set up uh rangers set up uh to keep the forest ecosystem working smoothly Mm -hmm. um so even from the beginning like the the circumstances around what brought him there like you could sense that um in some ways this person is is running away and that's a little bit of a different uh it was a unique kind of like I didn't know if I liked Henry in the beginning of the game, yeah. um, and that was just a really new experience for me. Um, but the game is really you're alone a lot of the time. It's a game about loneliness. It's a game about space, uh, and I think that um, really the core of the game is is the interactions that Henry is having over a um, walkie-talkie with his supervisor named Delilah, mm-hmm. who you. Uh, he have not seen, and I don't. I'm, I'm assuming may not po- possibly they never meet throughout the game. Um, but because he's alone, and because his only lifeline is is this walkie-talkie with this voice at the other end. Um, you know, she is his boss, so she's giving him instructions. But they're also talking. They're, only, they're like the only two people in this park um, for stretches of time. Um, and it just, I think, what's striking me is. Um, just how the cinematic choice, like the cinematography, the music, um, and the way that Delilah's voice really becomes a fully fleshed character, like even though you never see her or never exist in space with her, um, you can really feel the ways in which, um, you know, she becomes a lifeline for Henry, like her Mm -hmm. approval of him or his interpretation of her tone really touches on the the insecurity, the fragility that he, the state of the state that he's in, um, the different, like the different answers, like, uh, it's, it's a sim, like a, like you have conversations with Delilah and you can choose an answer. So like, for example, um, she was talking to Henry early in the game and then she's interrupted by a phone call. Um, and she's like, hold on, I'll be right back with you. When she gets back online, you have a couple options of dialogue. Um, like she'll be like, Hey, I'm back. And, and you can say, Oh, like, no problem. Like, what were we talking about? Or you can say, Who was that? Why were you like, where did you go? Who were you talking to? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> since this was a mystery game, I'll admit, I, uh, I was like, Oh, maybe I should pick the who were you talking to one? Cause I don't know if I can trust this person. And when you say that, she's like, Whoa, like, uh, I don't owe you an explanation. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to hang up for a while and you don't hear from her, um, mm-hmm. for a day. And it's like, that hurts too. Cause you realize how <laughs> alone you, you're really dependent yeah. on this person, uh, to come talk to you. So it's just, it really highlights the, interesting power dynamic between mm-hmm. Delilah and Henry um, and and just that that walkie-talkie and waiting for it 
to buzz or or the the pregnant pauses between saying something and waiting for a response like it just does a great job of kind of recreating what it's like in real life when you're kind of forming these intense relationships with someone and um, especially in the age of the pandemic where we're all isolated it kind of feels a bit yeah. like that too um, interpreting tone over distance um, just a really rich narrative experience um, I know you've played it Jamie like do you yeah. remember your playthrough much Oh yeah, Firewatch has got to be up there. It's like one of my favorite gaming experiences of all time. I think for me, it was a really interesting evolution of what like Gone Home did. Have mm. you played Gone Home? No, I want to though. Okay, I think if you get into Firewatch, I would say check out Gone Home. Gone Home came out first. It's a different developer. Gone Home is Fulbright. Mm. Uh, Firewatch is Campo Santo. Um, but it felt like an evolution of the way Gone Home was trying to tell a story. Mm. Uh, I will say a, yeah, a few things with Firewatch. The the acting in it, the acting particularly, you know, Henry and Delilah is so fucking good. Henry's played mm-hmm. by is is, you, is it Rich Summer? Is that how you say his name? He's oh, from Mad that. Men and a variety <gasps> of other things. Um, so he's he's a prominent like character actor on TV. Uh, Rich Summer. That's who Whoa. plays Henry and Sissy Jones, who does Delilah. She's popped up in a lot of video games, but I really feel oh like. Oh my they're... god, he played Harry Crane on uh, Mad Men. There you go. Yeah, I know yeah. that guy. Yeah, yeah, that's him. <laughs> that's him. Um, so their acting really grounds the entire yeah. experience of the game for me. Um, I'll be interested to hear what you have to say when you finish the game. I think I was. I love the experience of the game, but was a little disappointed with some of the narrative choices they the made with the ending. Mm, yeah. Okay. Um, in a way that I wasn't with Gone Home. So I think, mm. you know, as far as like comparing these two games to each other, but I love the dynamic of 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 Henry and Delilah and their conversations. And yeah, every, I, I agree with everything you've said about the atmosphere mm-hmm. that the game creates, which I would also chalk up to the um, Chris Remo who did the soundtrack for the game. The, it, mm. the soundtrack for Firewatch is on Spotify and it is, that's some great background kind music for your day. Really mm-hmm. good. And another reason I tie this game to gone home, Chris Remo also did the soundtrack for gone home, mm. which also has phenomenal music. And I totally agree. Like I don't, at least at the beginning of the game, like, and maybe even by the end, like, I don't know if I liked Henry, but I understood him. Mm. And I understood why he was doing what he was doing, but he is, he is kind of running away. Um, mm-hmm. And they, they kind of leave it up to you to decide how you want to paint that, like what he's allowed to do in this situation. Like, is he abandoning his partner um, mm-hmm. or is it fair for him to uh, take this space? Uh, right, right. Like for there's... himself and like process what he's going through too, you know? Mm. I don't know. I might feel differently about it now than I did when I originally played it at the time. I remember thinking he was being kind of selfish. Mm. Um but I also don't know how I would act in that situation. It's a really tough situation mm-hmm. to be in. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah, that's excellent. Like how it really puts you in, forces you to slow down and really question those judgments you may make at the beginning of the game because mm-hmm. the time that you're spent in his head and um, reliving his memories um I don't know, it, it kind of makes you consider something that for a lot of folks, maybe they hadn't thought about before. Um, yeah. I And what you said about the music, like I think what is just so striking is how there's really not much going on in the game 
like you're walking through the forest, you're uh, checking supply boxes that were left by other rangers and hikers, um, you're clearing brush, um, doing things like that, stamping out old campfires. Um, but what becomes an initial um, response to what Delilah and Henry think are some kids setting off fireworks in the park and him going and dispersing them, putting those fires out, um, becomes a much bigger, creepier mystery. And they're able to achieve, like, you're just trying to figure out what's going on. Like, someone's watching the two of you. You find some strange objects. Someone breaks into the tower where you're sleeping. Um, and you're trying to just piece together what the F is going on because you're in this remote forest. You can't really just call the cops. Um, and so just the way it builds that suspense with perfectly timed music and mm-hmm. perfectly cut shots. Uh, and of course, the acting between um, Henry and Delilah, like it just it creates something really unique. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited to reach the end. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but more on that, uh, what are you playing, Jamie? <laughs> uh, so a few episodes ago, I talked about this little game that I started called 13 Sentinels Aegis Rim. It's a little game. Just a little game, little like 60-ish hour game. <laughs> um, well, I finished 13 Sentinels and god damn, Spencer, that was a, that's a good fucking game. Oh, man. I, uh, I feel like this it's going to be another one of those games where like, the game comes out the year before it gets buzzed, but I don't manage to play it. And so I play it at the start of the following year. So then mm. like, it'll be one of my games of the year this year, even though yeah. it technically came out last year. I feel like Outer Wilds was in a similar situation last year. Um, but what a, it, yeah, really fucking cool game. I was really just the way the narrative twists and turns mm. and the way they constantly keep you on your feet. Uh, so for folks you may not remember, this is uh, this is the game made by Vanillaware, published by Atlas. It's uh, about 13 Japanese high schoolers uh, who are caught up in this narrative of epic proportions, a sci-fi narrative of epic proportions. Tons of uh, science fiction tropes appear in the game. There's uh, mechanical kaiju that are attacking <laughs> the cities. The kids have to get into giant mechs and mm-hmm. fight the kaiju. There's uh, time travel. There's space travel. There's cloning. There's colonization of other planets. There's mm. uh, the Matrix, basically. Oh my God. It really goes everywhere. <laughs> it goes, uh, <laughs> there's Terminators, essentially, in the game. Androids, AI, nanobots. <laughs> Wow. The list goes on and on. And, and the fact of the matter is, is that like what's impressive about the game. So you, when, as you're pl- to play the game, you're experiencing it in kind of two paths. There's a path that is the mech battles, um, which are uh, played out as turn-based strategy games where you are in your mech and you're fighting the kaiju. Um, you're the, you as the player are seeing kind of a top-down view of the city and you're controlling, um, the, the kids in their mechs and making them fight the kaiju. And then there's also a path of the game where you play essentially these vignette, uh, novel or visual novel scenes Mm. where you're seeing kind of the day-to-day life Mm. of the characters. You're making some dialogue decisions, but it's more like the the story is going to happen the way that it's going to happen. And it has some light adventure elements in that, like, 
as you have conversations with characters, you unlock certain keywords or key items that then allow you to progress the story with a different character, with that character um, in, in different ways mm. uh, and kind of piece together this mystery. But the fact that every single one of those vignettes manages to like every single time I finished a vignette, I was like, what the fuck? What the <laughs> fuck? I was just constantly like, Oh shit. What the fuck? And they keep that energy through the entire game. There's probably like 20 to 30 hours of the visual novel stuff. And every single scene that you play, you learn something new in the narrative. Just, it's just constantly twisting. It's just it twist, 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 twist. Together. Here's the thing, right? This is, it's like, it's like watching a, a balancing act, right? Or like watching like a really intense circus performance where everything's flying and like maybe some guy in the background dropped a ball, but you don't even notice it because yeah. everything else is still moving. And yeah. I feel like that's the magic of this game, which is that wow. like if I actually got my notebook out and like tried to write this narrative out and like try to piece it all together and make sure it all made sense. I'm not hundred percent sure that it would all piece together perfectly. I don't, there's probably some pieces missing from this puzzle. However, the actual experience of it, they pull you through it so quickly mm. and they're constantly twisting and twisting and twisting. So you can't necessarily keep track of it, even if you wanted to. So that by the end, if you just kind of let go and let the water take you, mm. like by the end, the emotional experience and the emotional payoff of the game is so like worth it that I don't even care if I've only got half a puzzle and right. there's like some puzzle pieces from other puzzles in here and like it does, doesn't necessarily all make sense as one cohesive thing that I can put on the wall. But I had yeah. such a fun time doing it that I don't really care if it doesn't all quite click together. Yeah. I mean, it's also fascinating because it feels like the type of story that could only be told through a video game. Yeah, I don't. I guess I could maybe see this is some sort of like wild TV show. But I also feel like if it was something, if it was content like that, that people could rewatch over and over again and pick apart, then it would fall in, fall under that trap of like, Oh, mm. this doesn't hold up because I watched this episode seven times and <laughs> yeah. I wrote everything down and <laughs> it doesn't actually make sense with the next thing. So I think you're right in the sense that like, I, it's a visual novel. There's not a, there's not a ton of interaction in the story. So mm-hmm. in terms of like, you know, they're presenting something to you like that aspect of it could be duplicated, but that kind of like roller coaster, like getting pulled along, getting pulled into the current of what's happening and not necessarily having the time or desire to go back and pick it apart, I think is unique to video games or, or maybe only comparable to like uh, something that you binge watch on Netflix. Mm. But even, even with something that you binge watch, there's still people who are going to go back and are going to break through all those episodes right but it really did remind me of like a binge watching experience where you just Mm. you just push yourself through something and and are like in it for that emotional roller coaster Mm. there's also uh two things that the the game does that i think are noteworthy one is that they they have uh it's it's still only one character in the game, but I feel like you see this so rarely um, in stuff like this that, or at least in what I've come into contact with, um, there's a character in the game who's just fat and she's like just treated as like mm. normal and capable and not like a gross monster. Yeah, uh, and she's actually like a really sweet character. She's someone who's she's not one of the main characters, but she's best friends with several of the main characters. Her name is Miwako, mm-hmm. and she's just a chubby teenager. 
uh, who likes to get snacks with her friends after school and she has a crush on all of the boys in her <laughs> class and she gets embarrassed around all of them. Um, but everyone thinks that she's a sweetheart. Like all of her friends are just like, they're constantly looking out for her and you're really invested in whether or not Miwiko makes it through the story. Yeah. And that was, that was cool to see. And I just think in general, in, in games and media, we don't see fat characters presented with humanity. So mm-hmm. it was just cool to see Miwiko there. Uh, being a fat teenager and like yeah. living her life and her weight's not commented on or anything like she's just mm. another person in mm-hmm. the school and it's not like they they don't show her she likes to get snacks after school with her friends but her friends who are both the like you know pick pencil thin <laughs> typical <laughs> yeah. anime characters anime protagonists yeah, yeah they they both are eating the same snacks that she is and it's not like you know me because the fat girl who's like sitting here right. mowing down on all the snacks uh i don't know as a fat person i appreciated it hi friends it's your co-host jamie i've come to tell you that i've made a huge mistake you see, in this podcast that you're listening to right now, I'm about to start telling Spencer about these two characters in 13 Sentinels, Aegis Rim, who I was super emotionally invested in when I played the game, but I'm about to get one of the characters' names super duper wrong. The correct names of the two characters are Takatoshi Hijiyama, a 1940s Japanese soldier displaced in time, and Tsukasa Okino, a gender-fluid kid genius out to save the world. Unfortunately, in the months since I beat the game, I accidentally got the name swapped around in my head. So throughout our conversation, you're going to hear me refer to the characters instead as Tsukasa and Okino. This is a mistake that I take pretty seriously and that definitely should have been avoided. These characters in this game mean a lot to me. Um, When Spencer and I discussed what we should do about this issue, though, I ultimately wanted to keep the conversation we had in the episode. For one thing, trying to re-record it would have felt inauthentic, and to just cut it and hide it didn't feel right either. So here's our conversation as it happened. To the characters of Hijiyama and Okino, to their creators and writers at Vanillaware, and to you, our Pixel Therapy audience, I'm really sorry for messing this up, and I'm going to try to do better next time. Thanks for listening. Now back to the original recording. And the other thing that they do that I really... I'm so torn. It's like, I don't really want to give, I want to give them props, but I also don't want to give them props because I think they fucked it up. Mm. But they do have a queer relationship in the game Oh, that I was super invested in um, between these, these two. This is like kind of some light spoilers. I guess if you want to play the game and have no context for anything, then bounce out. But there's two characters, uh, two, uh, I guess we'll say guys, uh, Sukasa who definitely is he, him and Okino, who is always pronounced as he, him, um, mm-hmm. but who regularly throughout the game uh, presents as a woman, like mm. will, will wear dresses and skirts and, and present as a woman and use a different name. Yeah. Um, Sukasa is from 1940s Japan. So he's got a lot of, <laughs> Uh, bigoted ideals in his head. Wait, sorry, just for co- just for my own. Yes, uh, we don't, no, go ahead. So there's like people from different timelines. There's all people from different timelines in the same timeline together. Yeah. So the majority of the games <laughs> take place in the 80s, <laughs> but there is okay. time travel in this game. Sukasa is Holy. pulled out of 1940s Japan by Okino and oh. brought to 1980s Japan, where he's helping Okino. Okino's a scientist okay. um, who's trying to figure out why the kaiju are coming. 
Okay. Um, but again, all high schoolers. <laughs> yeah, of course. He's a boy genius, I guess. Yeah. Um, so when Tsukasa first meets Okino in 1940s Japan, Okino is presenting as a young girl and is doing that to like get information, or at least that's what you think at the time, mm, like dressing as a girl yeah. to get information. Um, Tsukasa develops a crush on Okino as a girl. They end up coming back to 1980s Japan together. Tsukasa realizes that Okino is actually a guy. Mm-hmm. Uh and is like going, th- he, he's going through all this shit. Like throughout the game, you play chapters of Tsukasa. Tsukasa is a playable character. Okino's not. So you're in Tsukasa's head a lot more than you're in Okino's. Mm. But Tsukasa's like, you, the game definitely makes you see that he is struggling with the fact that he is bisexual. Mm. That he's struggling with the fact that he is attracted to Okino, not just when Okino is dressed as a woman, mm-hmm. but Okino, like, as he exists. Wow. And that he's not, he's got a lot of internalized homophobia because of where he comes from. And so he's dealing with that. And Okino do, I don't know if this is good or bad, but Okino recognizes that Tsukasa like has feelings for him and is just constantly giving him shit about it. Like constantly like, like flirting with him and then making fun of Tsukasa when Tsukasa gets embarrassed about it kind of. So they have this like, kind of like, I don't know. It's played off in like a really cute way, but it's, I don't know. It's always just a little like that touching. Sassy twink energy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's always like touching this wire of like, is this problematic or not? Mm. But you're still kind of really rooting for them because Sukasa, like, Sukasa is such a himbo. He's just, mm. he's kind Aww. of a dummy, but he wears his heart on his sleeve and he's really like, for Japan. He's like, yeah. you know, he's, he's, a, he thinks of himself as like a big hero. Yeah. Um, and he wants to protect people. So, you and get- Okino's this annoying power bottom. <laughs> Basically, yeah, yeah. He's like constantly giving him shit. But but the thing that I that they do, so like it, it's made clear that Okino just likes to dress as a woman sometimes. And like it, he, he's doing it in situations where it's not advantageous to getting information or anything like that. Mm-hmm. He's just doing it sometimes. But every time he does it, they make this like weird, like he plays it up with Tsukasa mm. in a way that I didn't think was necessarily appropriate where like Tsukasa is getting embarrassed because he's attracted to Okino and mm-hmm. Okino's like making fun of him. I'm like, okay. And they just, they kind of, I don't know. Sometimes mm. they just make it too much about like the genitals mm. mm-hmm. that I, that I felt like was inappropriate. But what Can really you give an example? Uh, well, there's an example. I'm going to have to spoil it to give an example. Okay. We'll put a, yeah, we'll put, we'll put a tag in the show notes when the spoilers are. We'll tag this in the show notes. These are deep spoilers for uh, 13 Sentinels Aegis Room. You learn that (laughs) everything that's happening in the game is happening in a future society and all the characters in the game are clones of people who set up this future society. Humanity has died out and they have created this giant spaceship that's floating through space that has five biomes in it set in different time periods. So 1940s Japan and 1980s Japan are existing at the same time. They're just different biomes in this spaceship. What? The rest of humanity is dead. (laughs) These 13 kids that you're playing as are the only ones that are left. (gasps) And everyone else that they see in the in the world are it's like the Matrix. Why? What's the point? This the people who came before 
before who set all this up, they were trying to preserve humanity. Oh, I see. Okay, humanity okay. had killed itself off, so they were trying like to preserve traveling- humanity. A time capsule. <laughs> yeah, basically. They were sending them out into the space in the hopes that they would find a planet and be able to start over again, right? Yeah. But instead, they all turned gay. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, just Sukasa. Uh, yeah. And Okina. Um, so, yeah, because that's the other thing the game does. Like, at the end of the game, literally all of the characters are paired up in heterosexual couplings to, like, like make babies oh, and no. start the world over again. Right, right? of course. Except As for Sukasa and Okina. So, you know... <laughs> <laughs> These are the things that we deal with. Damn. So as Tsukasa and Okino are going through their story, they're finding things that they think are from the future and you think are from the future until you realize that these are recordings of the people that they're cloned from in the past uh, because they're seeing older versions of themselves uh, and thinking that's them in the future, but it's actually the people they're cloned from in the past, uh, right? So this, is, this game is just mindfuck on top of mindfuck. It just folds these mindfucks in. And so you're constantly yeah, just sitting there like, what? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so Tsukasa finds this video file of him, uh, of like what he thinks is an older him having a conversation. Yeah. And it's very clear from the video file that him and Okin- Okino are in a relationship together. Yeah. And it's kind of like a watershed moment for him of like, just coming to terms with his feelings for Okino and like mm. accepting those. Then of course, you know, the kaiju come like, blah, blah, they're, you know, shit's blowing up. The world is mm-hmm. ending. So oh, they're in a situation where he can't just like go to Okino and say anything to him. Mm-hmm. Okino ends up laying down his life or you think he's laying down his life. What he's actually doing is they're all in a simulation. So mm-hmm. he's just giving up his simulated form. He's actually still safe in a pod somewhere on the oh, ship. Okay. He lays down his life for Sukasa. And then his his like AI or his voice or whatever, because he still mm-hmm. exists, is in Tsukasa's mech with him as they're fighting the okay. kaiju. And they're mm-hmm. going to this battle. So him and Tsukasa can still talk to each other. And as they go into the final battle, Tsukasa finally makes his like declaration of his feelings for Okino, which he still does in a very Tsukasa way, which is just like, he's like, yeah, I, you know, I'm going to go out here. I'm going to fight for Japan. I'll give my life. He's <laughs> like, and I'll give my life for you too, Okino, because I'm going to give my life for the people that I love. And Aww. Okino's like, oh, Tsukasa. <laughs> and then he goes out and they fight the final fight. And you're like, oh, like, that's so cute. Like he finally, like he didn't flat out say like, I love you. But a lot of the characters are, yeah. you know, there's all these couplings in the game and they're all kind of dancing around it because they're a bunch of high schoolers, right? Totally. Or totally. I guess the game makes a point at some point of being like, they're all 18. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <Right>. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that. Uh, <laughs> good, good. <laughs> so... The spaceship lands, people get out of their pods, right? The, the game ends and they're going to go start life on this new planet. It, then you then get an epilogue five years mm. later. Mm. It's showing you all the different characters and all the different characters are paired up. All of these will these or will they or won't these that you will they or won't these that you've been watching mm-hmm. throughout the game. All these characters you've invested in hoping they would hook up. They're all paired up. They're having kids. They're repopulating the planet. You're like, oh, mm-hmm. yay. Like I'm getting what I want. Like I'm getting this happy ending for all of these characters. Mm-hmm. And then we come to Sukasa and Okino's uh, fucking epilogue scene. And yeah. all the, so the game doesn't really show any of the characters kissing or anything, but it makes it very clear. All of these other characters have paired up instead of being like fucking Sukasa and Okino are paired up. It does this whole weird thing where Sukasa. So, I mean, Sukasa's by that's totally valid, but he's like, he's, they go back into the simulation for fun. Like they're, mm-hmm. they've, they're on the planet, but they're now able to reenter the simulation to engage with all of the people that are saved in the simulation. And they're talking mm-hmm. about how they're going to try to bring them into the real world. Mm-hmm. Again, the 
we're going too far out. But anyway, yeah. they've gone back into the simulation for fun to visit all these people that they haven't seen in five years who only exist within the simulation. Yeah. Sukasu has gone in there with one of the other like lady characters in the game, and he's like hitting on her, which is oh, fine. No. Okay, he's by. Okay, sure. Then Okino shows up. Okino shows up in the dress. Starts hitting on Tsukasa. Tsukasa's getting embarrassed. And then Okino makes a comment about how, like, well, in the simulation, I can have any parts I want. Mm-hmm. And that's how they fucking end it with them. We don't get any sort of, like, final, like, they're definitely together. Like, Right. But it's also, like, this... Uh, well, and it's the fixation on the the genital, or like playing right. it up, and like that's supposed to be titillating. That is Okino like, is not a real one. Yeah, like, like yeah, even like whatever Okino's gender is is valid. Like, uh, just this idea that oh, Sukasa, uh, the love that he felt for Okino uh, in the real world, it, we need to bring in like another woman for whom can be the woman that Tsukasa wanted. It's just like, that's kind of a slap in the face after that mm-hmm. whole story, that that, mm-hmm. that journey you went through. Like, yeah, I, I would be really upset by the same thing. Yeah, I just, I felt like they got so close to <sighs> yeah. giving us like, and, and also like, I, I don't know. I just like, I, I don't think that we needed to see Tsukasa like pairing up with one of the, uh, uh, the young women characters because mm-hmm. like, like just this whole fixation on like, Oh, we're going to repopulate the planet. Like I, we just didn't need that. Like we could have seen that like Sukasa and Okino's mm-hmm. relationship was valid, even in this new future where we're yeah. trying to restart humanity. It would have been really nice to still see their relationship as valid. Or if you wanted to bring in the other character uh, of them having a, a three-way partnership, like I would have yeah. been fine with that too. But the way they did it, where it was presented as it was also presented as though Sukasa was like sneaking around behind Okino's back with this girl. Mm-hmm. And then Okino shows up and they make this whole thing about whether or not, yeah, he's a real woman or whatever. And that like also that that would hinge on whether Sukasa was attracted to him or interested in him, even though we've gotten all this throughout the game that made it, I thought, pretty clear that mm-hmm. he was interested in Okino, regardless of whether. Okino mm-hmm. was, you know, presenting as a woman or not. I, it just, yeah, it right. was, it was a bummer because right. they built up so much to that. I, yeah, it's also just a damaging rhetoric that like uh, people who are playing with a femininity or exploring femininity or have some feminine aspect within themselves that, uh, you know, that they inherently want to have the parts that society has dictated belong to a woman Mm -hmm. like this idea that like um like if if like i think medical and surgical transitions are totally valid but like Mm -hmm. i just resent the concept that um this character is just reduced to whether or not what's in their pants yeah um yeah, and, and like nothing in the game suggested that Okino was interested in transitioning that way mm-hmm. or that that was how, again, I'm using he because that's what they use in the game, though, like, mm-hmm. because we never see anything from Okino's perspective, like, I feel right. like that's a missed opportunity too to not make him one of the playable characters in the game and get inside his head more, but... Mm-hmm. 
Like we're never given any inkling that that's what he's interested in. It's literally just presented as like he's using that to titillate Tsukasa. Mm-hmm. And it just, for one thing, I don't, it didn't feel authentic to me. And it just felt like the focus was on such the wrong place. Like you had mm-hmm. an opportunity to just, to to show real growth for that. Like all the other characters got a chance to grow. And yet I feel mm-hmm. like in the epilogue didn't, the epilogues for all the other characters felt like a, a good ending to their story where you felt like they grew and they got somewhere in their relationships with each other. And we mm-hmm. see Tsukasa and Okino and it almost feels like they backslid, right? Like Tsukasa, mm-hmm. we had just seen him like actually take the step of trying to admit to Okino that he has feelings for him. And here we are five years later and he's like back to still being embarrassed. Like I, mm-hmm. it just, it's like, okay, so we just backslid. There was no real future for these two. Right. It's like toxic masculinity sort of coming to uh, give an excuse for Sukasa's behavior or like um, the idea that a gay man, for two men to date, one of them must want to be a woman or or mm-hmm. one of the men must need to see the other man as a woman in some way in order for the relationship to be valid when like uh, this idea of who's the man and who's the woman in the relationship is not a real thing. Yep. Um, yep. So it feels almost like it's uh, trying to explain itself by being like, oh, well, he's gay, but only because he fell for uh, Okina as a woman and now he's been tricked. And so mm-hmm. that's what he needs to be mm-hmm. attracted when like the game you played, um, it was it, it it could have been so much deeper than that. They really yep. saw each other and, and loved each other as people, but it feels like we have to wrap it up in some way that uh, just cuts out any ambiguity about gender or queerness or whatever out of the picture. Yep. Um, yep. Which is unfortunate. It just felt like they were ripping something away from players um, that could have been a really heartwarming, fulfilling thing to see in a game, mm-hmm. especially a, a game like that where so much of it is like on we're going to restart humanity and the idea that part of restarting humanity would be bringing queer folks along uh would have been a great message yeah, right. to have in the game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so i i still think the i it's still a game that i really really loved but i just felt like mm-hmm. yeah i wanted to kind of get that out because mm-hmm. it just felt so it was it it was one of the really, I was invested in several of the relationships, but it was one of the ones I was invested in the most. Mm-hmm. And that epilogue was just such a downer. So I wanted to talk yeah. about it here. Wow. Thank you. That I'm really f- interested in this game. I should try to give it a shot. I, um, thank you for that analysis. It's like really, really interesting. Um, I, I just, that's, this just popped in my head. Speaking mm-hmm. of, um, 13 Sentinels. I've just been reading about like, and I know this is something we touched on last week, but um, like, yes, the game, make sure we all know that the kids are all 18. Um, <laughs> but there are like these scenes where like, as the uh, characters are going into their like mecha suits and mm-hmm. stuff where they go through these like uh, magical transformations and their clothes disappear and it can, it's almost like sexual. I just, I wanted to reflect on it for a minute because um, I think that, anime as a genre often gets uh held up as like oh it's so sexual like Mm -hmm. all anime is about objectifying uh women's bodies Mm -hmm. and um you know it's disgusting uh not saying like you're saying that just just there's lots of conceptions about um sexuality and anime as being inherently 
more or more inappropriate or more um, bold um, mm-hmm. than other forms of media or a, an expectation. Um, and I was just thinking about, uh, I think it was Cece, uh, one of our previous guests, uh, who is a narrative designer, um, was just tweeting about like how when we look at American games, like all of the God of War games had sex scenes in them mm-hmm. that were very pornographic. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a scene in The Witcher, like Geralt's feet have basically become a meme. <laughs> and um, they're, like the sexualization of women fantasy games, um, like just latent sexuality in gaming isn't something that's unique to Japanese or yeah, anime no, games. Not at all. Um, not and we all. don't really talk about the pornography of other types of games in the same way that we criticize anime. Um, so I just wanted to, I thought that was a really interesting point. And um, I just wanted to voice it since we were talking about 13 Sentinels again. Because um, I think it was an important, just reminder for me too, because I think I tend to, um, like, you know, if I want to be titillated, I know where to go on Reddit, let's just say. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I'm no stranger to the sexualization of, of anime, but I also feel like, yeah, it can be unfair, I think, especially for me from an American perspective to um, to judge it any more than I would, like, American media. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's that's totally valid. And I also think that with more mm. than, than just anime games, but it's, I, I don't know, it's just a thing with games in general. Like, I want people to take games seriously because I mm. take games seriously. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think my own, like, feeling that, like, if there's too much uh, too much tits and ass, like, mm. in a game or too much excessive violence that then other people won't take it seriously. And so I'm, like, mm. preemptively critiquing something. Like, 13 Sentinels is such a complicated story and such a, like, there's so many beautiful moments in that game and, like, it impacted me so much. Like, anybody should play this game. But there's also part of me that's, like, if I just handed this game to somebody who doesn't play a lot of games and they get 10 minutes in and the, all the girls' clothes comes off when she goes in the mech, are they going to completely mm-hmm. dismiss this game mm-hmm. out of hand mm-hmm. because that right. happened? Right. And it's like sex isn't inherently detracting from like something can have sexuality and sex in it and still be emotionally impactful and still be really important. And like sex isn't inherently detracting from the value of something. But I think what you're, what you're saying rings really true in that for someone who already doesn't see games as like a serious art form and who is mm-hmm. coming into it and is just seeing that without the context of, of, taking like you see naked people in in fine art in the museum and you're Mm -hmm. not like what the fuck is this Mm -hmm. but if you don't if you already are discounting games as a not a valid art form and then the sex is added on top or the sexuality uh, objectification is added on top of that i can totally see how it could just in deeper inform someone's misconceptions about what games are yeah yeah so i guess it's uh it's just a good reminder that even as people who appreciate games, we can have those same external objectifications like Mm -hmm. in our heads. And we can be using that to critique games from a, that's like not even necessarily our lens. That's like what we think other people's lens will be. Mm. And so we like judge it on that. I don't know. That's interesting. That's interesting. 
Oh, great conversation <laughs> per usual. Uh, but I think and more to come, <laughs> more to come here on Pixel Therapy. Uh, I am going to go ahead and transition us over to our guest now, though. Our guest for you today is the lovely Janet Garcia, aka Game Onesis on Twitch, Twitter, Patreon. So excited. Pretty much anywhere else you can find people on the internet. Janet is a game critic, content creator, Twitch streamer, podcaster, YouTuber. Bop, 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 bop. Uh, she does a little what bit of everything. What can she do? That's <laughs> a great question. Uh, and until rather recently, she worked at, for IGN as their guides editor. Uh, but she's out on her own now running an awesome Patreon that you should definitely check out. She'll plug that at the end of the interview uh, and throughout. Uh, we definitely talk about her Patreon quite a bit. Uh, and I think this interview is a great pitch for why you should follow Janet. Uh, Spencer and I had such a fun time talking with her about everything from working in games media to binge watching the same TV shows over and over again for comfort uh, to pushing your <laughs> out of your comfort zone and into the learning zone. She's really someone uh, that we look up to in this space, and we were so grateful that she took some time to chat with us. So without further ado, here's our interview with Janet Garcia. Janet, thank you so much for joining us in the virtual Pixel Therapy studio. We're so happy to have you. Um, typically, we ask folks to share their pronouns um, and just a little bit about how you spend your time. Sure. Uh, I'm Jan Garcia. My pronouns are she, her. And uh, for how I spend my time, it's a lot of work, uh, <laughs> a lot of gaming, a lot of streaming, mm. editing things. And when I'm not doing that, I, I am trying to differentiate a lot more because for a long time, I'm like, that is all I do. Uh, and I should probably do other things that aren't that. So <laughs> I've, I've been a distant, distance runner for a really long time. Uh, that's been a big part of my life since I was like in my 20s, uh, early mm-hmm. 20s. Uh, I started learning how to play piano. I started learning how to roller skate. I'm trying mm. to get into cooking more. So those are other ways that I like to spend my time as well as rewatching the same sitcoms over and over again. <laughs> oh, feels so good. It's just like a, com- like a warm blanket. Yeah, why watch something new when I can watch something I already know (laughs) is good for most of the seasons, and then I'll still just sit through the the bad ones, because why not? Thanks, brain. Just (laughs) stick me back there. Um, Yeah, I call it melting my brain. mm. It's like that, or like endlessly scrolling TikTok. It's like a good brain Mm. session. I love it. Yeah, I guess I feel like with TikTok and streaming and Twitter and Instagram, TBH, and just the onslaught of all of the, like, millions of types of content that I can take in at any time. I really feel like my TV taste, especially in the past couple of years, has really just been like, I know my three shows. I go to TV to relax and let go. And I go to every other channel that is in my hell phone for all the other content. (laughs) (laughs) What are your three shows? Okay, this is really embarrassing, but it's like The Office and... I it's so bad. And um, what else have I? Oh, uh, my hero academia because it's just love. The, I love those guys. Um, and my third show, oh, community. Nice. Uh, yeah, I don't hear that one a lot. For like, it's such an interesting show where every episode is very like distinctly different. That mm. um, yeah, that's like a very chaotic comfort show community. <laughs> It's I know it just feels like every episode you come back and rewatch you get something there's something new to pick up out of it or some new reference to there's there's a lot there's layers to it. Um, what about you? What are, what are your kind of repeat shows? 
Yeah, I got I got a lot of them. Uh, lean heavily on sitcoms. So, Hi Much Your mm. Mother. Oh yeah. Um, like I know that show really well. <laughs> like I actually watched the pilot air on TV back when you watched like actual TV. Mm-hmm. Back when TV was more than just mm-hmm. like the name for the thing that streams stuff, right? Um, <laughs> you know, or displays like cast things too. Um, so that's definitely one of them. Uh, I've been hitting Scrubs really hard lately. Mm. That's been the one I've gone back to. Uh, I also watch The Office a lot. You know, people will always make that comment of like, please stop watching The Office, just watch another show. And I'm like, no, <laughs> like, no, I'm going to, I'm just, this is what I do. Like, yeah. this is the loop. Uh, I used to hit Seinfeld pretty hard too. I haven't really gone mm. back to that one as much. And I don't even know if it's how easy it is to stream, but I was a big proponent of getting the season DVDs for a lot of these things too. So mm, I have like mm-hmm. How I Met Your Mother on DVD. I think we do have The Office somewhere on DVD as well which uh, is kind of silly. But then as things keep moving from different streaming platforms, it's kind of nice to like say that you always have that. Oh, and Friends. Friends is a big one. Even though Friends in the modern era, like it's a lot more clearly problematic than (laughs) the first Mm go. Um, So there are some like instant skips for me in that series. But um, on the whole, like I really enjoy Friends. And it's interesting looking at like these sitcoms that, you know, haven't aged well in some social ways, but also in some ways where they are surprisingly progressive in in certain categories, which is nice to see too, you know? Mm. Like, Friends may have, like, a lot of uh, very stereotypical, like, gender norm stuff, definitely some transphobia, as a lot of early sitcoms do, but it also has, like, you know, a predominant, like, queer presence as well, and, like, all these other things that are um, not put in there and, like, to make fun of the identities, but put in there as, like, hey, like, this is a way of, of social conflict and how relationships develop and and those things which mm-hmm. is, is really cool especially for the, for the, the era that that show came out at uh yeah we just got that on dvd in my household which is wild because the dvd version shows like i think what originally aired so mm. there's like scenes i've never seen before on the set of dvds so uh i'm kind of excited to find these new clips that got edited out and they have like behind the scenes stuff where they talk about like oh we didn't have a budget to do this so like, mm. this is just a curtain from somewhere like I really get a kick out of like the the little details of things um, from those shows as well. How the sausage gets made. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, like having a DVD set, which I'm sure Jamie can relate to because last, I mean, I haven't been into your house in months, Jamie, but uh, <laughs> I really appreciate how her entertainment center is like DVD, like the DVDs are part of the decor, like. Uh, it's, it's I decorate serious. with all of the media that I own. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's the entertainment slash living room. Like, what else do you put it? But honestly, with the way that contracts end, like you mentioned, and the fact that, I mean, The Office, I might as well get it on DVD now because I don't want to pay for Peacock. It, for people who may not know The Office news, it moved recently moved off of Netflix and it's now on Peacock, which is like NBC's new streaming service. And we're basically just going back to cable. But instead of paying one price for all the channels, we now get to pay for every <laughs> individual channel. Uh, and it's just awesome. And so I haven't watched The Office. I guess that's why I've, I've been forced... <laughs> I even tried to watch, I started watching Criminal Minds. That's how bad it was. (laughs) (laughs) But honestly, DVDs are like worth their weight in gold (laughs) in terms of being able to just watch in perpetuity. So I mean, we do have to get off the couch and put the DVD in the machine, though. I got to say, sometimes that is a big hindrance. You hit the end of that disc and you're like, um, or I could just fall asleep. Who needs ring fit? I got DVDs. (laughs) Every every couple hours I get up and put in the new one. There you go. I know one time I accidentally hit play all and I was like, 
we're just gonna be here now um that's interesting too with like how certain media players are also like diminishing like Mm. obviously most of us probably don't have like dvd like dedicated dvd players but most people use consoles but with like this new having like a like discless SKUs available at the ready like there are people that can't you know you can't put your office dvd in your ps5 because it doesn't have a slot for it mm-hmm. um i did actually get the the disc version of all that stuff like i'm a huge physical media fan so i always need yeah. the option at least um the first disc i put into my ps5 was actually um a dvd of a bts concert i'm not a bts person <laughs> like i'm not a k-pop person that's, not, like, yeah. that's no shade to the k-pop community it's just that people always get you know they're a very passionate group for better or worse mm-hmm. and people always get really excited if they think that like oh it's you I'm like, it's not me it actually isn't me it's like no, it's it's my roommate and i'm like supportive of the life. <laughs> they want to claim you <laughs> yeah i'm like it, like literally i think i you know I, I like a few of the songs from like mm-hmm. the, the k-pop scene for sure because it's good some good music yeah. um, and i remember tweeting out like oh i've been listening to like this one a pink song on a loop and i had like their fans dming me like thank you for listening to this ma'am and i felt so old too. Like, Damn. you hit me with the ma'am so respectful like, nah. Yeah. yeah, like thanks, ma'am. Like oh my I know this, this K-pop my, ideals. Yeah, good, good due diligence. But yeah. um, I was actually watching The Office um, on Netflix on New Year's Eve, so I watched mm-hmm. when it was no longer available. Which sounds very melodramatic, but like this is a COVID New Year. Like we're, I mean, I, I never really go out for New Year's Eve anyway. But this is we're all more at home than ever for it. So I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. and, I, and I love doing um for the holidays putting holiday episodes on so we tried finding anything new year's related and it's kind of tossing it on there for one last netflix yeah office hurrah that was also our our new year's yes. eve party okay, we're, in good, we're in good company then like everyone's yeah. like a little basic but in a way that's like you know it's fine like i'm, I'm drinking we a, need a basic coffee right now yeah like, we need basic there's right no now standards here like it's yeah. all comfort. that's right So, Janet, this is a video game podcast, and to that end, what is your history with video games? My history with video games, like, um, I think a lot of, like, media content people, goes back very far. Uh, It goes back to a time where I'm struggling, because I don't know math that well, like 1999, (laughs) right? I'm a 94 kid, uh, Mm -hmm. which is starting to get old to some but it's still usually young to most uh which is a nice yeah. place to be i think what are world. we like young millennials was that was yeah that what we are? it's okay. like we're only old to like a few people though i, I finally <laughs> I, I just turned 27 and it was the first year where you know being 27 now where i feel like somebody might think of me as older mm. i still feel like pretty young and i don't think 30s like the worst thing in the world to turn so i'm not like super <laughs> dramatic over it but um i'm like oh i'm kind of like veering into that other section but then i go on shows and, and people will be like i got my n64 in high school and i'm like baby yeah baby baby oh i was like oh do you know that like you're with me who's like not an adult like i, just, <laughs> like, I don't know if when you invited me you were aware that like literal child but um so I, i've been playing games since i was about like five years old uh my first console was the snes junior which mm. is an adorable start <laughs> and, uh, to make kind of a long story short, my uh, my brother's six years older than me, and he was the first one to get into games just because, I mean, at, at five, you don't really have a lot of perception of anything going on. Yeah. Uh, but he he saw, like, uh, gaming and was like, this seems cool. Like, I want an N64. Uh, and my parents were like, we're not going to get you an N64. <laughs> it's so expensive. We don't even know if you're going to like this thing. Like, I don't want to spend all this money, and then you're going to, like, not be playing it. So 
they're like, I'll tell you what, we'll start you with the the SNES Junior, which for those who don't know, it was just like another SKU, right? We've had these multi-SKUs for a long time, and it was a, a smaller, slightly different design, uh, cheaper, just sort of, it, it came out when the N64 was already out, so it was sort of like, mm-hmm. who is this for? It was for parents who didn't want to buy the N64, but wanted <laughs> to give their kid a game console that was our household. So that was like our first system. We probably had that for a year or two before getting the N64. So I definitely grew up um, like a lot of, I think, general gamers. You know, we get outside the bubble of people that are dedicated enough to be making content over it. Most folks aren't getting stuff at launch. Like you usually get it a few years later. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember growing up, I only ever really had like a dozen games for a console, maybe less, which Mm -hmm. sounds kind of wild because the consoles were expensive. But it's like, oh, we only have like these three $60 games that we got like every birthday. Like that's yeah. it. Like if you didn't if you didn't play a lot of the sunshine, there wasn't much left. There's like <laughs> Sunshine Madden, Mario Party, Melee, you mm-hmm. know, Crazy Taxi. It's like right, like the, there's only right. a, a handful of of games that we even really had. And then, you know, of course you had a blockbuster to kind of stretch that out a little mm-hmm. bit so you could get, get some more experiences. But yeah, that was basically my uh general history. Uh I did have moments where I stopped gaming as well, which I think a lot of people have had, if you haven't had it, it's it's kind of nice to have, I think, a break. Um, it, it feels less overwhelming, and it also is a reminder of, like, that I like the thing, like, stepping away from it and coming back. So uh, around the Wii era, I kind of fell off of games because that was the era of motion controls, the yeah. era of predominant shooters. And I was always, mm-hmm. like, a platformer person, um, and I didn't like first-person games. So I sort of looked around the gaming space and felt like, I think my time here is sort of done, at least for now. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I pretty much stepped away. I, I still had consoles and would play, like, you know, my PS3 sometimes. But it wasn't until, you know, after high school into college that, uh, like, we're talking about basic, I watched Indie Game <laughs> the movie and was like, oh, there's all these, like, indie games. Like, as if indie games didn't exist before then. But, you know, mm-hmm. like, hey, I'm here now. So it's okay. Right? <laughs> right? Like, um, that it, that was the movie that introduced a lot of people, myself included, to that space. So um, I had my MacBook at in college, and I, I played Super Meat Boy on that with the um, the keyboard. That's my claim to fame. I beat that game with the keyboard uh, of a MacBook. So I Damn. think that was pretty cool. Don't know why I just didn't connect a, a controller. It wasn't that hard, but I had trouble <laughs> getting the Bluetooth to work. So I was like, we're just gonna we're just gonna ride this out. And I played a lot of games on Steam. Like I was one of those like humble bundle people mm. that has now like, you know, 800, 600 <laughs> games that you've never installed, but like one day, right? Um, and, and yeah, that was kind of the the experience. And then as I got towards the end of college, I, I finally got, or maybe after graduating, I finally got a PS4. And I sort of, at that point was like all the way back in. I would say I got all the way back in towards the end of college where I, uh, you know, start with this kind of getting into, I guess, my career as well. But yeah. I came back in when I started writing. Like, I sort of realized I hadn't played games in a while. And I'm like, oh, I think, you know, I've always loved writing. Like, I've loved writing since I was, like, in seventh grade. I did poetry. I did blogs. Like, I had a blog all through college. And I'm like, I think writing about games could be a fun way to, like, meld these two passions that I have and sort of get back into the gaming space. So I started writing for free for just a mobile game site. And for me, it wasn't the reason I didn't really care about it being free is I'm like, I'm literally just doing this for fun. And like, oh, and I get some codes sometimes. Sure. Mm. And um, that was my first sort of experience coming back into games through coverage. So um, I do think a lot of my game passion comes from the experience of doing coverage. And that's sort of what I think keeps me coming back. But uh, as that grew, I got, you know, deeper into games. I got deeper into media. And uh, that just continued until I am now here, you know, very, very heads down in both of those factors and aspects. Yeah, awesome. And speaking of here, um, for folks who may not know, um, Janet has, uh, what do you call Gameonesis, like your 
tag? Yeah, I, I've gotten that question before. It's something I've asked myself as well. I would say it is my handle and my brand, which I feel like is kind of extra, but it's a lifestyle <laughs> brand. You know, it's a way to live. <laughs> um, it's a lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. it's a lifestyle. Um, no, that sounds so pretentious. But yeah, I would say it's my handle and my brand. Like people ask like, oh, so do I go by that? And like, I do and I don't. Like that is my handle. And usually when I do content, I just say I'm Jen Garcia, aka Game Honest, just so that people kind of connect the two. Um, it's like the umbrella of underneath all of it so i i am kind of that in a way it's a persona but it's not a persona in the like ti versus tip sense where it's like or you know beyonce <laughs> yeah. versus sasha fierce it's not like any mm-hmm. of that kind of thing um it's a lot more melded than that but uh that is a way to think about it that isn't entirely like off base word okay so janet your persona gamonesis um inspired by the god of wine. Um, I love how you write uh, that the name is a nod to your love of mythology, but also reflects your overall goal, not of being necessarily the greatest gamer in the universe, but rather um, you say, I want my gaming experiences and the content I create to be a universe, expansive, beautiful, curiosity-driven, and inspiring. Um, And I just wanted to ask, like, what inspires you about video games? Like, what drives you to keep making this content? What draws you to them? I think all the layers of games is what really inspires me and gets me coming back. I love when things finally click uh, in certain spaces of the internet and certain perceptions. I think people do see me as like a little bit negative because I, I can be very critical of games, but mm. on the opposite end of the spectrum, like to me, good criticism uh, is finding the best in the worst games and the worst in the best games. So I, I think that is also why I sometimes come off that way because I, I would talk a lot about a lot of like big, you know, AAA things. And I'm like, okay, well, let's look at the ways that this is kind of like not, not that good. Um, but versus, you know, I can play <laughs> these little, you know, small experiences. Maybe the, the art is like not that great or like whatever, but I can find mm-hmm. like certain things that I really appreciate in it or value in it. Um, even if it's not maybe the greatest, you know, experience in the world or, you know, it was like, oh, this is something someone, you know, I played, I played people's games on itch and they're like, oh man, like this was for a jam. You weren't supposed to play this. Like, <laughs> please don't. Um, but yeah. you know, I, I find a lot of cool stuff in that. Um, God, there's so much I love about games. I like how mm-hmm. they can be enjoyed on a lot of different levels. There's the, uh, the visual, uh, the sound, the story, but then there's also like the different things that make you have a an enjoyable time or an enriching experience. So there are times in games where I'm like, man, I love that this is like kind of stupid, you know, like I mm-hmm. love how dumb, like I, I love like silly stuff, cute stuff. Um, Like one recent game that I played that I was really into was Fogs. It's on Game Pass on Switch. And it's just like, you're a, mm. you're just like a long dog and you just control these different parts <laughs> of the puzzle game. And admittedly, I think, you know, there's definitely room for growth in terms of the, the structure and how the <laughs> physics work and stuff. Like, it's probably more like mm. a maybe a seven-ish kind of level if I was rating it. But um, man, I love the hell out of it because it just felt so mm. joyful and silly. And it, it, it you know, scratched and itched. It, ha- it created a spark for me that I don't always get when I'm playing a game. So for me, I kind of like chasing those special moments. I think, you know, games like any art, it's hard to make good art. Like it's like something exceptional, like across all the things that are being made. That's super rare. And I think, you know, there's nothing wrong with with seeing it that way. It makes finding it that much more exciting, you know, playing a lot of things that like don't hit for me. Um, one helps me appreciate the stuff that does hit. And two, you just learn so many connective threads in the designs and the stories of games. Um, that's one thing that I like I'm really chasing, trying to be an expert by playing a lot because you can start to make mm-hmm. connections and see things in ways that you didn't before. Um, I was recently streaming the medium 
as part of my like, oh, latest games that came out, like best of 2021 watch. And right off the bat, I'm like, okay, the protagonist is giving me control vibes. The camera is giving me old school Resident mm. Evil. The uh, adventure structure is giving me don't nod. Like I'm sort of, and obviously sometimes that can be, you know, taken to an extreme where every tagline is like, this is the blah, blah, blah of this. Or like this, <laughs> it's Super Mario for people that like puzzles. And it's like, what does that mean? You know, and honestly, it, gets a little bit, it gets a little silly. It's like, you know, it's the crazy taxi of visual novels. Like, okay, you know, is that Neocab a little bit? Like, I want to hey. play that. <laughs> and, um, you know, that kind of get a little silly. And obviously comparisons aren't always the best thing, but it, it helps sort of see like, okay, how does this work in this context or doesn't work or what makes this special or, okay, they were going for this and did they succeed in capturing it? You know, is Bug Snacks a better Pokemon Snap than Pokemon Snap's going to be? Mm. Like, I don't know. I'm interested to find out. So mm-hmm. I really love like all those elements as well as just, um, I don't know, talking to people about games, uh, you know, doing this is probably my favorite part of it all. Like the the content part of it, the discussion part of it. And I think that's what I really like about streaming because it's it's all happening immediately and live and i get to like just to kind of speak the stuff i would be thinking anyway and like turn it into content and it's always great when you can just turn something that you really already wanted to do into like okay this is something that like is shareable and like you know profitable and sustainable and like livable and you can kind of sort of make you know stuff that you already kind of were going to want to make which is sort of how like i got into games media to begin with like i came in not looking for a career i just wanted to do this and then i'm like but what if I could do this and also make money, which is hard to do, but I'm working on it mm. as yeah. I think a lot of us are. So what you were saying about, um, you know, how drawing comparisons may not always be the best thing and it can get kind of ridiculous the level at which you could, you could do that. I mean, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier when we go back to the same sitcoms, the same shows, like our brains love patterns, our brains find comfort in patterns. If you're going to invest 40, 60, 200 <clears throat> Persona 5 <laughs> hours into a game, like you want to know what you're getting into. And so, um, I don't know, I just think that it's an interesting parallel, the fact that we kind of look for threads of uh, things that are familiar and feel good to us in others. And, and there's there's delight in finding those those callbacks and references. Like, I mean, the nature of code and software design is, is very iterative and, and building upon what was there before. So I kind of love that, that games are very interconnected in this way. You know, before the pandemic, a big part of gaming, like I recently moved in with my partner, so it's a little bit different now. But when I lived with roommates, like I would always be gaming. I'd either be watching someone game or I would be gaming and someone would be watching me and we would just hang out and talk and that would be hanging out. And like, uh, I mean, the J- like Jamie, I've gone over to your house and we've spent countless hours, me just watching you play something while we chat. And um, like, it's just a very comforting, soothing activity. Um, and I... I just, I really love that aspect of streaming, of sort of reaching across space and time and bringing folks together and something that um, is intimate, but can also be like fun and and easygoing. It could be a lot of things. Like I know a lot of people get mental health support from streaming or find community in streaming. Um, I know for me, I'm very, very scared of Resident Evil. So I got the chance to watch you play Maiden instead of having to do it myself. And that was, that was great for me personally. And I'm so- glad. <laughs> Thank you for being there. <laughs> I just love the way that it uh, really opens that door. Um, and for you, like, 
Um, you spoke about this a little bit already, but um, what are you trying to bring your streamers with your channel? Like, what do you want to provide uh, with your content? Yeah, so there's a couple things with that. Uh, I think specifically with how I'm approaching streaming now, where I'm mostly a variety streamer with a little bit of an emphasis on Animal Crossing, but not enough of an emphasis <laughs> to be like the Animal Crossing streamer. Because um, those people are like doing a lot of stuff and their islands look really nice. And I'm like, that's not what we do in here. <laughs> we um, but I think like, a little bit of um, comfort, I think, from the Animal Crossing streams. Though it's funny because I'll, I'll watch other Animal Crossing streamers and I'm like, oh, wow, it's just so soothing. And then like, there's myself and I'm like, you know, I have like this like slightly deeper voice and I'm sort of just like, like, uh, you know, and then people, and people will say like, oh, this is like just came in for like this cozy, soothing stream. I'm like, this is me literally like swearing as I pick up this field of flowers that just yeah. ran amok. So um, but I think I am aiming for a little bit of um, coziness, a little bit of togetherness. It's sort of um, I guess Animal Crossing does fit in with the other ga- other games I play in the sense that a lot of my approach is, hey, do you like games? But let's be real we ain't trying to play all these games. Like it's like mm-hmm. the gaming's a lot of like downloading, but then not getting to it and a lot of, you know, backlogs and guilt. So this is mm-hmm. okay. You don't have to play that. Just come watch me play the game. It's the same. <laughs> it's the same difference. And you can sort of, you know, maybe check out stuff, see if you're interested in it, uh, experience something you like again, get a taste of something. Um, I had some people like with my, not the maiden stream, the, uh, the medium, they all have like similar names. Right. Yeah. With the medium. Uh, like I had one of my uh, community members coming in and then they're like, okay, well you're at the part that I got to. So like, I'm going to leave cause like, I don't want the spoilers. And then they came back and were like, uh, I came back to see if you got stuck at this part too. And I was like at the part that they were, we were both stuck at and like little stuff like that's really cool. So, yeah. um, you know, everyone comes to streams and just general gaming content for different things. For me, my experience with engaging with other people's content and creating content has always been to sort of have a form of conversation, even if it's not the kind of conversation we're having now where like you're here and I'm here and we can all like mm-hmm. directly respond and talk. But like I mm-hmm. loved podcasts so much, like getting into games where I could play something and then like listen to it. And it's sort of, remind- have you ever seen that meme of the kid eating the yogurt by the poster of the other kids eating the ice, it was like the ice cream <laughs> or whatever. And yeah. they're laughing with like the poster of the people laughing. That's <laughs> absolutely how I feel listening to podcasts. Yep. I will be- and sometimes I get so into them. I'm like, Oh, like I like want to like respond and like, you know, sometimes mm. I'm just at them on Twitter, but then I'm like, let me leave them alone. Cause like, that's, that's probably too much. Um, but yeah, I get really into that. And I, I think being able to create that space for people to engage at the level that they feel like they want to. So it's like, okay, well, I'm here. I'm always talking on stream. You know, lurkers are welcome, but like literally like you want to talk to me, I'm here. You want to like hit me up on Twitter, I'm here. Like I, I really try my best to respond to everybody that I get because I'm also small enough that like it's mm. somewhat feasible. Like I can understand someone like, you know, who's crazy famous. Maybe they, it's just literally not possible without like a marketer person or something. But yeah. I'm like, look, it's not that deep. I get five comments on this thing, a hundred on like a TikTok. It's like, I can take the time to go in here. And like, it really does mean a lot when people take the time to respond to my work. Um, that's something that like, as it's such a big deal to me um, that, yeah. So I'm kind of looking to create those kind of spaces and be the person playing the games that you were too lazy to play. <laughs> That's also mm-hmm. that, uh, in my content. If you, if you choose to use it for utilitarian purpose, like deciding on what you want to play. Right. Love that. And something else that I really respect about you is your specialization, if we can call it that, in writing guides. 
Um, so you were the associate guides editor at IGN for a while. You also run a website called GameIndustryGuides.com, which is chock full of awesome advice um, for folks looking to break into the industry. Um, I guess I feel like it takes a special person to write guides, especially considering how massive and full of secrets and Easter eggs video game worlds can be. Like, it's just like, how can it, any, just thinking about trying to write a guide for like Assassin's Creed Valhalla makes me want to curl in a ball and cry. Um, and you've written guides for everything from Pokemon Sword and Shield to The Last of Us Part Two, really out here doing the Lord's work. Um, <laughs> and I'm just wondering, like, so as someone who writes a lot of guides, like, is guide writing more of an art or a science? Like, how do you even approach that? Ooh, that's a great question. I'm going to go with science, but, like, from a scientist <laughs> that has empathy. So, like, we all know about, like, doctors or scientists that have, like, no, like, people skills or, like, mm-hmm. social emotional intelligence levels. So I do think you, uh, even though I think I know guides writers who would be like, I don't have any social emotional intelligence. Um, but I'm like, you're just being self-deprecating. Um, but, yeah, I think you do need to have a little bit of, of empathy because one important part of uh, doing guides is you need to be able to write for the best players and the worst players. You have to write for the person who's stuck on a thing that they're now realizing wasn't even a puzzle and that they just feel a little bit, a little bit dumb. Um, and you have to write for mm. someone who is like, I want to do the hard mode of final fantasy seven remake. Um, shout out to the people that actually wrote that hard mode guide. Cause that wasn't me. I can't do that. I like, don't have the, <laughs> I don't have the ability. Um, and that's the other thing too. Like I was so intimidated to write guides before I started writing them. I honestly got into guides writing, by accident slash out of desperation, I was, mm. I really wanted to like, you know, work at IGN, um, in any of the big outlets, really, I was, as I was building my portfolio. And they're like, well, for freelance, we have a guides, uh, we have some guides space. And I'm like, oh, sure. But I'm like, oh, no. But like, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. the, it's the classic, like, you know, and you want to do this within reason. Like, I want to caution people never do something that you genuinely can't do. Like, there are things I genuinely cannot do. Like, if you want, you know, a certain production level on a video, like I, that might be out of my scope. Or if you want, you know, there are, mm. you got, you do got to know your space, but you also have to be willing to kind of push a little bit outside. Um, I have an education background. So that's actually called, if you, if you study educational like philosophy and stuff, there is a uh, Vygotsky's zones of proximal development. And in the middle of the mm. circle, there's like the stuff you can do. And outside that there's the stuff you can do with help or the stuff that kind of challenges you. And then beyond mm. that is the stuff you just straight up can't do. And the goal is to be in that middle because that's where learning takes place. So I, I think that's kind of what I mean by, oh, I didn't really know if I could do this. And then I just kind of went into it. Um, it wasn't like totally out of my scope, but it was a little bit. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to do this because like I want to write uh, for IGN. I want to like build my portfolio and have these big outlets. Uh, and I did grow to have a, a real joy and appreciation for it. That being said, I don't personally see myself going back to do guides. <laughs> uh, life's long, so I don't want to say anything super concrete. And I find that the universe, yeah, when yeah, I yeah. say sweeping declarations, like, I'm never <laughs> going to do guides, like, I end up doing them. So I don't want to say <laughs> yeah. anything too definite. But um, what you grow to appreciate is in helping people and providing a service and also doing a level of teaching. Uh, for me, having an ed background, uh, a guide is really just a direction set. You are giving information. Mm. Um, some obviously there's different forms of guides. There's like tips and tricks and like breakout pieces, and you do like videos and companions, and you can make graphics for things. Like there's a lot of ways to convey information, but I really try to write for like the highs and the lows of it, uh, making things like very skimmable because the reality is like some you know the worst thing is when you go to, you're trying to find one specific answer and you can't within like this, this long page, or this long YouTube video mm-hmm. you're scrubbing through. Um, it's like okay, like I just need to get this answer so I can keep going. Uh, you know, so many times people do come to guides from a point of frustration. So, yeah. So I would say it's a science, but you need to have a little bit of that people element because you also need to be like 
good enough where you can figure out what people might have trouble with, um, which is actually where, like, if you feel a little bit insecure about your gaming abilities, which I, I definitely did as someone that stepped into a guides team with people that were, like, really great at games. Um mm. Part of that can be helpful because, like, if you got stuck on something and you figured it out, good. You now know everyone's going to get probably stuck on that same thing and you can kind of write it in a certain way and you can start to see, okay, this person's going to be searching this thing. And then then we get kind of more into the business of, like, optimizing on Google and stuff like that. But mm. that, stuff, that stuff is helpful because you can figure out those things. And there are definitely pages that I made really in-depth and I'm like, I don't know if anyone else had a hard time with this, but, like, I did. And I, I never know how much of a um, impact that makes, but like I remember getting to the end of Control, a game that is a little challenging, but I didn't find like you know ridiculously hard. Like I wouldn't characterize that game as hard, but the end of it, uh, it just had like this long sequence of like enemies that I just it just took me forever to do. So I like wrote a really in depth page. I had to learn how to cheese mm-hmm. it. Like if you're bad at kind of bad at games. That's good because you will learn how to cheese stuff. You will find the point in the log in Metro Exodus where you can just shoot the bear in the face because the developers put that one pixel there and like that stuff is gold. So yeah, if you can cheese stuff, let's go. Like I I love a good cheesing. I love just kind of jankily getting my way through areas. So um, all that stuff's really valuable uh, in that space for sure. Word. So for anyone out there who wants to be a guys editor, if you're a bad gamer, going to help you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, on this show, we like to it's we really like to focus on the emotional connections that people form with video games and so we like to ask folks um, to talk about a specific game that was significant to them or influenced their life in a certain way. Um, you shared with us that Super Mario 64 um, had an impression on you as an early gaming memory, um, a game that you still love, um, and a lesson in learning to do the things you can't do at first. Um, and so I guess to start, like, I mean, even though Super Mario 64 is pretty iconic, like, how would you describe this game in a couple sentences to someone who'd never heard of it? It is it's a Mario game, if you're familiar with Mario. He's uh, a guy, a little plumber. <laughs> yeah, red hat. Um, hat's important. Uh, <laughs> it is a 3D platformer. Um, I believe now I'm like questioning if it's a sandbox. It's I believe it's a sandbox mm. because you have these different worlds you can enter into. And uh, essentially your goal is to collect these stars and you have different worlds. They all have different stars. It has a little bit of there's uh, some mystery and some surprises there. But I would that that is basically the summation of the game that I would provide. Beautiful. And tell us about your relationship with Super Mario 64. Yeah, Super Mario 64, I mean, it is, like, the iconic game of the N64. I think, I would argue it's the first game people think of when they think of the N64, unless you're one of those GoldenEye people, and then, you know, no wow. one no one likes that guy. So. Yeah, don't be that guy. <laughs> yeah, let's not. Like, it's not fun to play now. Like, I'm not having a good time. Like, just let's, why are we doing this? Um, no, so much shade to GoldenEye, though. But, but anyway, it is one of the iconic games that you think of for that, um, for that console, uh, and for good reasons. Uh, it, it is very much i think a masterpiece in its time i think it actually still holds up as very close to such i mean you know some some control issues for sure um (laughs) but yeah it was like just like a a wonderful experience and um for me that was like the one of the games that i most vividly remember from my childhood you know obviously it's really hard to remember all those years especially when you're really young 
Mm. And I, I don't have a lot of super concrete gaming memories, uh, which is a shame because like I, I love games, so I wish I knew like my first game for sure. But I don't like. I what was my taste talent. back then? But, yeah. yeah, right. Like, what was I in? You know, what, what, who was that person? Uh, I've I have very little clue. It was probably just whatever games we had. But but you know, I had a uh, you know Yoshi's Island early on, mm. and Mario sixty four was one of the first, I guess, bigger games I can remember finishing. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not like a terribly long game, but you know, there's there's multiple areas, uh, a couple I like key boss battles, like mini bosses. It sort of has a lot of um, traditional structure and what I think we consider to be the modern, current platforming hallmarks. We got collectibles, we got a couple secrets, mm-hmm. we got some bosses, we have like you know these stars we have collectibles that are related to the stars so it sort of has hits on all of those points um and as a result it was like one of the first like like fully fledged gaming experiences that i really remember having and and also struggling with um i, I had some struggles yeah. with yoshi's island as well but um mario's interesting in that it's like well it's 3d so it's like a totally different space and also some of the elements can be quite challenging. I mean, I that game got ported to uh, Switch this year in the form of the All-Stars collection, and I'm mm. sort of slowly playing through pieces of it now. Like, my family mm. is just sharing one file, and we're kind of getting the stars, but we also stopped doing that, so I don't know if we're going to finish. <laughs> but, you know, and even even as an adult who, like, has made a living in games media and things, like, I, there are still stars that I'm like, man, this star's kind of a bitch, you know? This yeah. is hard to get. Um, <laughs> yeah. So as a child, certainly, like, there were a lot of struggles there, and like a lot of games, Mario 64 teaches you mechanics very intentionally because they're mm-hmm. like, hey, you're going to need to know this. So, like, I'm, this, I'm making you do it so that you know it. And, you know, I had an older brother, and he would definitely step in and help me with certain things. Um, but, you know, we also know that sometimes when you when you get something done, you don't actually know how to do it. You just kind of, like, got lucky, and it, you can't <laughs> replicate it. Um, and that was the case with a lot of, like, Mario 64 with, like, I think the crouch jumps and, like, the wall kicks and things. Like, you know, it was mm-hmm. – it's hard to really coordinate that when you're when you're younger especially. And uh, I would avoid a lot of stuff. I'm like, ah, oh, this is good enough. Okay. Or we just won't get that star because you also have the option. You don't have to get everything in the game to beat it. But then sure enough, at one point, we get to this point where you really – you literally need to do this. It's not optional. And they're going to ask you to use the one mechanic you've been avoiding. Or, like, oh, actually – this boss is centered on this like long, even though I don't think any boss actually is, they're pretty simple, but like this long jump or something, or it, to win this race, you have to be able to do the triple jump or something like that. And I'd be like, damn, I guess, you know, there's no avoiding it now. Like the, the, um, I know, the chickens have come to roost, right? right. Saying, like <laughs> right. it's time to deal with this. Like you avoided this for so long and it's time. And I think what I love mm. about that is that's a lot of what life is. Like you can put off, things but chances are you're going to need to figure it out at one point um or you know sometimes you can't avoid stuff forever but then it makes your life less enriching um that's something i'm kind of going through now like going back to the you know mentioning other things i do like piano and skating like Mm -hmm. i had tried to get into music for so long and failed so many times i bought so many instruments i mean i had like a guitar and i got rid of the guitar and i got ukulele i got rid of that then i got another one i still don't know how to play it like it's just (laughs) been this whole thing and that's it's like these these big hurdles. Um, and then when you start to, un- what's interesting too is when you start to look at it and unpack it, you see what the problem really is. So like with me and like music or skating or doing all these things, like the problem is I don't have confidence in that vertical. And if you dig deeper, okay, maybe I have other confidence issues in general. That like, okay, now we got a whole mm. thing to unpack, right? And like, it's kind of, okay, you're forced to face up to this through this. Um, and that's what's great about like sports and music, like their performances or things you have to do it's there's clear rights and wrongs and like there's only execution or failure and you have to like accept that and live with it and and work through it um and in moments in that game there are those moments as well where it's like okay well there's only one way to do this 
and you, you need to get it done correctly to continue mm-hmm. um, and, and being forced to face that and, and overcome it. Um, I think that's something I'm still very much learning now. And a lot of uh, my early gaming memories were definitely underscored by fear. Like I mm-hmm. had a fear of boss battles. I still kind of mm-hmm. have a fear of boss battles, to be honest. I'm like, oh God, like it's like it's like the, the standardized test of games is kind of how yeah. I refer to it. But <laughs> I was always so scared about like, and again, it was like that performance anxiety. So it's yeah. like, oh, you've actually had performance anxiety since you were like freaking five. And like, you know, get over it. <laughs> like, get over it. And I'm like still working on getting over it. But those were like my early moments of, and I think I'm obviously a lot better than I am emotionally and intellectually than when I was five. But like, that was part of like experiencing that. And a lot of my childhood through games and through other activities, you know, it kept coming back to that same thing of like getting good at, at being comfortable in fear and learning how to execute through that um, has been like a big life lesson. I think games have a lot of those little like life lesson moments. Like I think games and sports and like other performance based things like are so good at teaching you how to well, forcing you to deal with things emotionally. Now, yeah. how good you are at dealing with that? Well, that's going to be, you know, that's how we get rage quitters and people that mm. are like, t- really toxic in games or have like really ne- or like, you know, people even that I know as, as uh, friends or peers or talk about like, Oh, like when's the last time when did you break a controller out of anger? I'm like, I never broke a controller out of anger because one, I never got that angry. Can't afford that. Some shit. of y'all didn't grow up poor. Yes, I'm like, uh-uh. I'm like, oh, like we're not getting another one. Okay, we already right. have like the the multiplayer. Someone's playing on the Mad Cats already, so we can't break this like you know that first Dual Shock or whatever the yeah. the I guess it wasn't the Dual Shock at the time, but whatever. Y- y'all know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah. yeah there's no. You're upset. You calmly walk over and turn that thing off. Because you don't want to drain that back. You're not getting another one either. This has to last the whole time. If I break um, this controller, the next thing to get broken is going to be my face. <laughs> like, oh, speaking of fears, like games helping you get over fears. Um, I feel like dungeons were a big thing for me. Like I've always been scared of the dark, but like uh, Skyrim especially, I think, kind of forced me to confront that sometimes you have to do dungeons. Like, um, Skyrim's this, like, open-world RPG game, but it has a lot of, like, going down into dark and dingy caves and going down into the abandoned ruins of ancient civilizations. And I don't know, I don't want to call it claustrophobia, but I really just don't like not being able to see the sky in games or, like, having to do long underwater traversal is, like, not always great. Um but Mario had a lot of that too. Like you had to go down to the bowels of that castle and like jump to these flipping paintings and shit. Like it gets kind of scary. Um, yeah, there's that um that uh it's like an eel, right? That like eel in the water that like comes out. It's like oh okay, yeah, and, uh, that thing's horrifying. It still looks scary mm-hmm. now because what's funny too about like those older games, like you know, I know some people are like don't really see as much value in like playing older stuff in the modern era, which I can understand. Like it's a very different experience, but like some of those graphical or performance limitations just created something that you'll never see again. Like that thing is horrifying and it would not like if you made the Odyssey version of that, I mean, it would look cooler, but like it would not be nearly as scary because it was so sharp with those little polygons. Mm -hmm. Um, Super scary. And okay. So like speaking of scary and like Super Mario 64, um, First of all, like I the definitely, scary too. <laughs> and also just the opening screen. Like I have very strong like light body horror memories of like you could totally like manipulate Mario's face and the in the menu, and you could like pull his lips and eyelids and stuff everywhere. So like that stands out strongly in my memory. Um, and I don't know if you were familiar with this, but I was reading this Polygon article. It came out in September 2020 um, by Patricia Hernandez, and it was about how in 2020, um, Super Mario 64 has kind of been um, 
there's this trend on YouTube of kind of like overlaying like old VHS effects and uh, analog film uh, on sort of the old, old uh, game through gameplay screenshots or videos and, and making it look like um, uh, like creepypasta kind of stuff, like uh, adding spooky layers. And it, and it kind of just emphasizes like the base layer spookiness of the game. Um, I wanted to just read this quick quote because I feel like it captures it pretty well. Um, but Patricia writes, it's a weird game, half Alice in Wonderland drug trip, half kids cartoon, um, says game designer Sam Barlow, who's behind her story and telling lies. Um, according to Barlow, Super Mario 64 is, quote, just weird enough that you might see malevolence out of the corner of your eye. Gorgeous screen fields above, demonic dungeons below. Chirpy dinosaurs one minute, non-Euclidean ghost houses the next. It's full of fake walls and magical paintings, optical illusions we'd never seen before in 3D. It's a game that really loves to poke at the fabric of its own illusion. Patricia writes, above all, Super Mario 64 has given rise to a series of scary stories because it hails from an area in which there was still a palpable sense of the unknown. Unlike modern games, we don't have patch notes listing out every single change and inclusion, nor do we have data miners who can tell us about every single file within a title. Um, and so it's just kind of speaking to the fact that like people are able to kind of uh, draw out these 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 creepy scenes from it, but also that we have this kind of collective memory of it as a kind of a little bit unsettling, having that kind of emptiness uh, to it that those early games have before we really were fleshing out NPCs and making things super immersive. Um, yeah, so I'm just wondering, like, as you look back on it, and especially since you were playing it again uh, this past year on the Switch, like, did you have any shift in perspective and how you thought about it? Um. I feel like it's a little difficult to answer if I shifted in how I thought about it. I think I did realize that, like, okay, some of this is uh, not as perfect as I, like, remembered it. Um, even though <laughs> it hadn't been that long since I actually played it. I replayed Zero Mario 64 um, only a few years ago um, on the original, like, N64. So it wasn't, like, that old of a memory for me as, like, for me for other people who hadn't played since mm. childhood. But, yeah, it was clear that, like, some of the... Um, the camera's rough, you know, like this is is difficult. Um, Or even like trying to, um, you know, Mario 64 does kind of suffer from the, you have an idea, but you're incapable of executing on it because of the system that is Mm. requiring you to execute on it, which is the worst feeling to have in a game. Um, But other than that, what I, what I really noticed the most from Super Mario 64 is trying to like chase and reignite a memory I had in order Mm. to serve me today. So like a lot of playing it, and I think I did actually look up a guide for maybe one of the things because I'm like, I don't know how the hell to do this or like if maybe I can't do it yet because I don't have like the ability or something because there's different abilities in the game, like caps you can get. Um, but like trying to figure out, wait, like I thought I could do that, like the penguin race specifically. I'm like, mm. wait, he knows I cheated. I thought I was supposed to che- Like, why is this wall here if I'm not supposed to? Yeah. Like things like that and trying to remember like, oh, wait, I think in this star, like you can do this, but in this other one, you like can't do it or something um, and sort of trying to figure those things out. Um, and it's been interesting too, because like, you know, I think that quote from Sam Barlow is so good. Um, and damn, like Sam Barlow is a good writer, but it makes sense because those games are good. So like, you know, not Mm -hmm. shocking, but, um, it really is like very much that, that poking at its own like mystery and that, that fabric, because even in like that winter area, there are for the red coins thing, there are like teleportation spots that have no like marker or no, like there's no notice on how mm-hmm. that you can do that. You just have to like, know, you know, it's like, and there's a little bit of like, okay, the bridge ends here. So it's sort of like this like spooky 
different thing. There's no explanation for it either. It's like, it doesn't fit in with the rest of the area. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of like, stuff like that. And I think one thing that I do enjoy about Mario 64 is even though it's not every time, a lot of times if you have an idea, it's like, oh, can I do this? And it does work that way. I do like that there are multiple ways to like solve a singular problem um, or to traverse a singular area in Mario 64. Um, yeah, like it's just such a good game. And I think it just provides like when you, you were talking about like emptiness and, you know, maybe like a lack of NPCs or a different kind of presence, there's just enough space for you to not really feel like super overwhelmed or like cluttered by things but um yeah it's just a chaotic interesting weird weird ass game um but there were a lot of weird games at the time like right banjo kazooie you could like turn into an ant and stuff like Mm -hmm. immediately um so there was a lot of like mysticism going on in that era um but yeah it just felt like uh, what i love about mario 64 is it's so joyous and pure and iconic for what it you know, the groundwork we lay, it laid for games today. You know, we talked about finding those connective threads. There are so many there. And I think with like a game like Mario 64, where it's a childhood game for a lot of us, or at least like a youthful game, like even people that are older in mm-hmm. games media are often still young enough to like, maybe they're in school to some degree, even if it's college, mm-hmm. like they're in some form of school mm-hmm. um, or they're like just getting going with life. So there's a certain kind of um, desire to also connect to that emotional thread as well in, ter- in addition to the mechanical one. Janet, it has been awesome hanging out with you for this past hour. Thank you. Um, Where can folks follow you online, uh, support you? um, And are there any projects that you have coming out soon or that you want folks to know about? Um, People can find me online at Gameonysis. That's game O-N-Y-S-U-S. I am on everything under that. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitch, TikTok, TikTok. Clubhouse. I just joined Clubhouse. I still don't understand how it works. Um, that's my LinkedIn also. Gamehouses. It's like literally everything. So, And it's my website, my like portfolio website that kind of has a hub of a bunch of different ways to find my work. Um, and the main thing I'm working on is just stuff for my Patreon. So that's patreon.com backslash Gameonesis. I have a bunch of different uh, tiers of incentives and things. But of course, if you can't support that way, you can support through just like follows and shares and being present. Uh, it means so much to me that people give me money to do the work I do. Like that blows my mind. But it, it equally blows my mind that people like are there supporting in like all these other ways too that in some ways can even be more impactful depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, and it means a lot to me that people so often as well are like, oh, like, I'm really sorry that, like, I can't really, like, give anything. I'm like, dude, I can't give anyone anything either. That's why I have this Patreon. So, like, first of all, like, it's all good. Like, I feel the same way about, like, creators that I love. But, like, it's so cool that people want to even do that. Um, And, like, I don't know. It's, like, so special to me. So that's what's going on there. Uh, Stay tuned on YouTube because I do plan on doing um, more video content than just my weekly podcast, which is Game Office Weekly on all platforms. Uh, I will start to be doing previews and reviews soon. I'm slowly rolling in back that written content. Um, I absolutely love streaming. Uh, it's been a great break on my hands too, to not be mm. all day, every day. Um, but I'm so excited to be doing like feature articles and listicles and like kind of turning that content into, you know, something that's you can just quickly go back to or keep track of uh, and having that pillar as well. So stay tuned for announcements on that where I roll out my own like blog style thing where I can kind of put all of that content because um, I'll be working on that really soon beautiful can't wait janet thank you so much for joining us on pixel therapy thanks for having me time is
is up for today's session of Pixel Therapy. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope that listening to our thoughts and feelings gave you some thoughts and feelings of your own. If you want more Pixel Therapy, come check us out at patreon.com slash pixeltherapypod, where you can snag that monthly bonus episode for just $2 a month, plus opportunities to get involved with the community and influence the show directly. If you're not up for contributing monetarily, but you enjoyed this episode, there are lots of ways you can support us for free, including leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and following us on Instagram and other social media at Pixel Therapy Pod. That stuff is just as important, and we appreciate it just as much. Remember that Pixel Therapy is a happy member of the But Why Though Podcast Network, so you can support us by supporting them and heading over to butwhythopodcast.com. That's though with a T-H-O. Take a peek at the inclusive geek community they are building around pop culture news reviews and kick-ass podcasts like yours truly. And you can keep up with all of this stuff and more by visiting our website at pixeltherapypod.com. Finally, since we like to put our money and our energy where our mouth is, we end every episode with a recommended side quest. This week's side quest is the Black Resilience Fund. Thank you so much to Janet for the recommendation. The Black Resilience Fund is an emergency fund dedicated to fostering healing and resilience by providing immediate resources to Black Portlanders. Um, they write, we need healing, we need justice, and that requires action. This fund was intended to provide immediate relief from financial burdens for basic living expenses and life emergencies for Black Portlanders. Their primary categories are warm delivered meals and groceries, support for small businesses, uh, and also in the form of education loans, bill support for utilities, phone and internet, rent support, credit card debt support, um, medical, transportation, and even moving costs. Um, the Black Resilience Fund was founded by Cameron Witten and Salome Chamuku in June 2020 and has since grown into a nonprofit organization supported by a small core staff and a team of local volunteers. Find out more and donate to the fund at blackresiliencefund.com. Thank you for that side quest, Spencer. That is our show for today. So go forth, run a story mission, level up some stats, and don't forget to hug an NPC every now and then. We'll be back soon with some more... Pixel, Pixel therapy. therapy. Yeah. <laughs> bye bye.